Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Hello everyone, I am Ayushi Mona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature. Today we are discussing Twilight in a Knotted World, uh, which is historical fiction set in the early 19th century in India. It's written by Siddharth, who joins us today. Siddharth Sharma is an author, historian, a journalist. His debut novel, uh, The Grasshopper's Run, received the Sahitya Academy Award, as well as the Crossword Book Award for Children's Literature. Um, even if you're not a child, it's a book worth exploring and, and across Facebook book groups, you will continuously see people uh, jostling Siddharth or asking for a sequel to this. Siddharth's second book um, and his second novel was Year of the Weeds, which received the Neve Book Award and the 10th Anniversary Special Award at the KLF. His most recent non-fiction book has been Carpenters and Kings, which is a comprehensive history of Western Christianity in India. It's quite an interesting spectrum of things that Siddharth's, you know, cradling, whether it's writing historical fiction or children's literature. He's a former investigative journalist. Uh, he's uh, covered insurgency, crime, law, foreign affairs, and was very recently, uh, till recently, assistant editor with POI in New Delhi. But currently, he's based in Toronto. Um, welcome to the show, Siddharth, and it's fantastic to have you with us. Hi, Ayushi. I'm very happy to be here. And a big hello to all the listeners of India Booked. I look forward to our conversation. So, Siddharth, uh, let's begin with the blurb, right? Um, the book starts under uh, with this premise that the soil of central India hides more than the bones of long-dead giants. And the blurb calls out saying that, you know, the East India Company is a master of almost the subcontinent, but real power is with the crown. And then there is this whole game of cat and mouse with Captain Sleeman. And there and there's this action-packed, um, you know, series of events that happens in, in Jabalpur district. And there's a certain involvement with Calcutta. And you literally transport us to a 19th century India. My first question to you is, uh, why did you choose to write about the topic? Of course, uh, I, I do understand your affiliation as a historian, but why, you know, this particular niche um, within the spectrum of historical fiction that you could have written? Right. Thank you, Aishi. That's, that's actually a very interesting question. And this goes to the root of why I decided to write this story. Uh, there are many things which are connected to this, uh, you know, the thugs mythos, as one may call it. Uh, one reason I wanted to write it is it's been it's been written about in fiction. You know, you find it in cinema uh, and various places. Uh, but there's, you know, it's a large and complex topic. And uh, while the non-fiction works on the thugs or the fascigars, the stranglers, the non-fiction works are very, you know, of, of very high quality by several noted scholars. In terms of fiction, uh, well, I was a little disappointed with the kind of works that exist about uh, this. So I wanted to write a story of my own about it. That's one reason. The other reason is most of the central characters in the book, including Sleeman, some of the Fasikars, uh, some of their contemporaries, they are, they are all very interesting people. They had they had uh, very complex lives. 
you know, they had multiple interests. Lehman himself was an archaeologist, he was a philologist, he was interested in India's culture, he, he did a lot of pioneering work in various fields. And of course, he was an administrator as well. Uh, and he wrote quite a bit, you know, there are several books by him which are still around. So, uh, there are several aspects to these people that I wanted to explore. I also wanted to talk about the Orientalists, you know, people like James Princep or, uh, or Horace Wilson, who's, you know, their works about India were the beginning of our understanding of ourselves. So these are all very interesting characters in nonfiction and otherwise. So I thought to write a fictional story about them would be a good exercise in historical fiction. The third and, and equally important reason is uh, modern India owes a lot to this period, the early 19th century. So, you know, a lot of our systems are inherited from uh, that period. I mean, that, that's where all this begins. Uh, our police apparatus, law enforcement, the legal system, bureaucracy, uh, even uh, ways of, uh, of looking at the people. For instance, our understanding of caste, uh, census. Uh, so all these things uh, began effectively from that period. You know? So I thought I'd, I'd talk about this period, I'd talk about these people, and I'd, I'd also explore how India was, or rather modern India was being formed. So all of these went into the story. Because I think, uh, you know, um, we, you mentioned Princip, right? Like, so now when you are, say, writing about a scholar who, say, as brilliant as James Princip, what is the level of granularity, right? And and this is a question uh, pandering more to a curiosity from, say, a writer's perspective than the reader's. How do you know what is the extent of research that you say need to get into to get these nuances right because of course there is that uh, there is a rigorous research that you do in terms of just getting the period right but when say somebody has uh you know when somebody is a linguist or a metallurgist uh, or an astronomer how do you ensure that you know nuggets of what they do professionally to tie in into your story in terms of like a plot loophole or an information that they give someone. Right. So that's where the work of a historian and, and the work of a historical fiction writer intersect. Now, a historian's job is, I mean, among many other things, is to look at a certain period in history and to give a clear, clearer picture about it, isn't it? A historical fiction writer's job is slightly different. That granularity which you're talking about that one. So, you know, these, these historical people, these events, the idea is to bring them to life with a kind of immediacy, you know, to fill them up, to make them more than two-dimensional cardboard cutouts, right? So, it's not just about uh, people and events and dates and names and places, but also about the lived experiences, their inner thoughts and other aspects of a person's life. That's where fiction comes in. So, you get a very good idea about James Pinsett's interests, his, his scholarly pursuits from his works, from his numerous notable contributions, as you mentioned. To fill up his personality or to, or to talk about his inner thoughts or, or to talk about the things that he did otherwise, that requires a certain kind of engagement with him. And of course, you need to imagine what he must have been thinking about because a lot of a, of a person's lived experience do not enter the historical record, even of famous people. Right. You have some very good examples of very well-known people with numerous biographies written about them. And yet, you know, sometimes you feel that their inner thoughts, their, their inner lives are missing from the record. Because mainly because, you know, history does not deal with these things. That's where a fiction writer comes in. 
So a lot of it has to do with me uh, imagining how life must have been from his eyes. And that's not such a difficult task because James Princeff, you know, he's a, he's a personality type. He's exceptionally brilliant. He doesn't miss things. And clearly he's not, he's not very good at small talk, for instance. So these aspects of his personality are not that uncommon. It's there in, in almost uh, all really brilliant people. So you create that kind of character for the story and that's how you fill up the gaps. Were you, um, it, you know, when, when you say um, are writing historical fiction, right? Uh, were you dismayed at the lack of historical fiction that sort of exists for, um, you know? I mean, of course, say internationally, right? You have like so much written about in popular imagination of historical fiction, something like, say, Philippa Gregory, right? Or you have so much Hilary Mantle, exactly. I'm just trying to think that not even just, say, through literature, but also literary adaptations on screen, right, are numerous, which is not the case for us, right? Most very much to this dynamic between, like, a Gandhi and a Bhagat Singh aspect that 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 is continuously talked about, twisted around or whatever, right? But a lot of other things happened, right? For instance, um, there's very little in by way of literature or cinema about Anglo-Indians or the in- interaction of uh, Englishmen uh, with Indians beyond the spectrum of, you know, being the white sahab, right? I mean, a movie like Lagan perhaps showed it in, in your book, a character like Hudson, right? How about this aspect, Siddharth? And, and of course, I think I'm sort of... Ex- Tending and building on what you said about the inner lives of people, right? So just as uh, there were people who were bigots, there were sympathizers, and, and and there's that whole dynamic of being the conquered versus the conqueror. But for you, um, from for, from a perspective of this book, or in the general scheme of things, how did you want to pen down the interaction between the British and the Indian? Because obviously there's the fancy that problem, but but there are other aspects also of how the characters are engaging uh, and and living with this country uh, that you know they that they've come um, to. Uh, so uh, if we if we go back to what you asked about historical fiction, now now one of the things you'll find in really good works of historical fiction is the writers are, if not, uh, you know, professional historians, that is, academics, uh, at least they have, uh, they have an extensive grounding in the subject. Good historical fiction writing is not possible unless one has a good grounding in history, or at least that, that aspect of history or that subject or that topic, because it has to do with research, it has to do with familiarity, it has to do with, with knowing the broad picture the larger picture. One problem in India has been the good historians, that is the academics, do not write historical fiction uh, for various reasons. Maybe they choose not to write it. Maybe they don't feel inclined to take to fiction because for them, you know, non-fiction is satisfying enough, whatever. It's their choice, right? The problem is uh, the few pieces of historical fiction that you find are or might have been written by people who might not necessarily have a thorough grounding in the subject in which case they might not have access to primary sources or have a thorough understanding of the subject to begin with. For instance, if somebody is writing a fictional story based in the Mughal period or in the Middle Ages, 
and that person does not know Persian or early Urdu, it's very difficult for that person to conduct research in primary sources. So when that rigor does not exist, the, the basic framework of your story is weak. That's, that's one of the problems with historical fiction that you will not find in good works of historical fiction. Hilary Mantel, as you mentioned, is a very good example. She knows her subject very well. You know, she knows it as well as a professional historian, as an academic. And therefore, when she writes fiction, her extensive knowledge of the subject comes into play. Now, in my case, I have to clarify, my background is not either in Indian history or in the colonial period. But I, you know, my background is in, in medieval European history. But I, I do have some uh, degree of familiarity with the colonial period. So it helps me do research in terms of primary sources. So it, it does help one. That's the, the, the process. The second thing that you mentioned, and I'm really glad you did because this is a very important point. In India, in the popular, in the, uh, popular imagination, the popular discourse, the colonial period is mainly about binaries, right? Uh, so you have uh, the colonizer versus the colonized, and the colonizer is usually depicted in extreme terms. In, in, in the sense that, you know, the, as you mentioned, the bigots or the, the, the people who, uh, you know, exploited and looted. The, yeah, the because, I, you know, for the life of me, I can't even remember like a visual depiction, right, of a colonizer who's not like a bristling white man with a mustache in an army uniform. But they came in all forms and shapes and sizes, right, from working class people to spouses, to, uh, you know, portly, older um, uh, traders, right? Yeah, yeah, there were all, all sorts of people. And, and broadly, the way I see it, you can divide them into three kinds of people, apart from of course, the class and the gender distinctions. The, the first kind are the bigots and uh, the exploiters. Okay. The second kind were the apparatchiks, the, you know, the bureaucrats, the people who, who came, did a job, went back. So uh, in the first case, there, there was a marginal kind of engagement with India, mainly in the form of an exploited piece of, uh, you know, a, a property, you could say. Then uh, the apparatchiks or the bureaucrats merely treated India in the way that bureaucrats treat any piece of land or people uh, as, as statistics or as things to be administered in a cold-blooded kind of manner. But then you have the third and, and you know, uh, statistically the smallest group, which is people who actively engaged with India uh, objectively, sometimes with love, but mainly with a great deal of curiosity and, uh, you know, a, a, a great deal of objectivity. Sleeman belongs to this category. Most of the early Orientalists belong to this category. Um, you know, people like Jim Corbett, for instance. Of course, Corbett uh, is a slightly uh, different case. But uh, there were a lot of British people who lived and died in India, right? They were also a part of this. So the, the problem, as you mentioned, is nuance. When we look at historical characters or events as binaries, we tend to forget that there is very little black and white in history. There is always, you know, shades of grey. And it is these shades of grey that get lost when there isn't enough discussion about them. Um, for instance, uh, if, you, if you invert the topic to the colonized instead of the colonizers, you will see that the colonial experience was different for different kinds of people. The, the princelings, the noblemen or the ex-noblemen, whatever you call them, then the emerging middle class, the, the early English-speaking elites benefited from British rule. 
So when they say that the colonial period was exploitative, people tend to ignore the fact that there were a lot of Indians who actually benefited from the colonial period. So who did not benefit? Uh, mostly it was uh, the lower castes, the Dalits, Adivasis, uh, women who of course have been exploited throughout history, so I don't even need to mention that. So the, co the colonial experience was different for the colonized in many different ways. So these nuances, these gray areas tend to be lost if you look at uh, things only in terms of sharp binaries. And that is something that we need to start talking about. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I've tried to do here. And you mentioned the working class, so that's very, very important because among the colonizers also, the working classes didn't benefit, right? The, the British working classes who came to India during the colonial period didn't make a lot of money. They just barely survived. Most of them lived in terrible conditions. They went back home. Their families lived in equally terrible conditions back home. So that never changed. Yeah, but you know, if, if Bazaar history is to be believed, every Britisher who ever came to India uh, went with like uh, a Kohinoor in one hand and a bunch of peacock leaves. In yeah, that's quite an image. I will remember that. <laughs> yeah. But of course, I, I'm not saying that... that I'm not taking away anything from the kind of exploitation of uh, that the British did and, and the rampaging um, of all Commonwealth nations. Uh, so that I think the next thing I, I really uh, was very curious about is is the women, right, in the book. And, and of course, another tendency with historical fiction sometimes, right, and often largely because it's, uh, caters to royalty or people in power, right? Because those are the kind of narratives that we find exciting to read, right? And and we often don't really um, read off women uh, until unless, you know, there, there's like some, there's a love affair or there is, you know, like in the, in a capacity which is like either a lover or a mother or something like that, right? Or a queen or, or along those lines. But, but I think uh, Melly uh, Sleeman is a very fascinating character. So, uh, and, and she has such refined taste and then, you know, and there's a certain, I mean, not a certain anger, there's a definite resentment that she has about how women are being treated and, and her contempt, etc. is very obvious. And and so is the fact that she has an interest in a, in a lot of things, right? Because again, the image that we tend to have of colonial women is that they all wear gowns and, and, um, and they host events and tea parties. Tell us a little bit about Melly Sleeman and then writing a woman um, a character as well as how she sort of comes to, uh, you know, comes in, into play in the context of the Fancy Girls. Right. Uh, so I'll talk about Emily Sleeman and, and also about the two other major women characters in the novel because they are all, you know, in many ways they're connected, even though they never meet in the story. So Emily is a historical character. Uh, the background that I've given in the novel is actually what she was. She was a daughter of a French nobleman who was dispossessed during the French Revolution. Uh, so he, he fled from France with nothing, you know, and uh, then he reestablished himself. Ultimately, uh, he lived and died in Mauritius. He was a plantation owner. Uh, Emily came to India when she was in her late teens. She lived in Calcutta with, you know, the, the posh set. And then she got bored with them and she went traveling in central India. She met Sleeman. She liked him and they got married. Like most other uh, women from the colonial period, uh, she doesn't get mentioned much. Uh, this is one of the problems that I have with Sleeman because as she mentions in the book herself, he doesn't notice women. Right. 
because uh, it's not that he's a misogynist it's just that he's, he's, he comes from a generation which does not really think about women yeah so beyond the point there isn't much of a serious engagement with women although he is concerned about women's rights he was one of the first administrators in central india to ban sati before sati was banned throughout the country but that you know that serious kind of engagement does not exist uh, so he does not write much about her in his books and i felt that that was a lacuna that was uh, you know a gap that needed to be addressed so i uh, i i worked on amelie's character for the novel as i worked with the other women's characters i tend to spend more time working on the women's characters in my uh, fiction because as a man i need to be really careful about how i portray women yeah certainly uh, i put more work into it than i do in most of my other characters uh, so amelie had a lot of interest certainly we just don't know much about them we know that she assisted her husband in his investigation we know that she was present at the exhumation of several mass graves and uh, we know that she worked with him in in translating the the code language of the fasikars uh, but beyond that the record is silent on her as expected so i had to fill up that uh, that gap so i i worked on her certainly a, a very intelligent a very perceptive woman a lot uh, some of her anger some of the anger that i have portrayed uh, her feeling is is actually drawn from early feminist literature including from from you know reading between the lines of wollstonecraft and some of her intellectual successors so um, the views that she expresses are not that uncommon among uh, uh, women, uh, european women of the early 19th century in the victorian period it changes a little bit it becomes a little muted but uh, you know in the pre in the immediate pre victorian period uh, it was a slightly more gender equal kind of domestic arrangement so i have tried to show that as well uh, the other two women characters are also interesting if i may talk about them a little bit so um, one of them uh, and again both of them are historical characters one of them is a brahmin widow sleeman met and after her, uh, her husband passed away she insisted on committing sati so and he could not prevent her from doing that because she said if you do not allow me to commit sati i will kill myself through other means in either case i'm going to kill myself so you know he could not prevent her from uh, killing herself and uh, he he entered that in the in the record you know but the description of the conversation is is very bare in the sense that partly he felt out um, you know perhaps out of sympathy for her predicament he did not give full details of their conversation so i had to im- i had to imagine a lot of it i had to reconstruct the conversation between them to understand the pain that she was uh, feeling you know because what what she says and and no spoilers here for the listeners i will try my best not to give spoilers but she says that you know sati has been banned but what happens to the widows afterwards you know what kind of a life can they look forward to because there isn't much else that they can do so you know these are some of the problems that uh, indian women had to face and uh, this is what through her i have tried to show the third woman uh, a third important female voice in the story is that of kudsia begum who was the nawab of bhopal a very interesting character she was the first of four generations of women rulers uh, this is unprecedented in south asian history probably unprecedented anywhere else in the world Uh, so in no other islamic polity will you find four successive women rulers who uh, you know governed with uh, near absolute power 
So she was very remarkable that way. after her husband died under very tragic circumstances in, in an accident, she took over and she ruled despite the disapproval of uh, you know other men of the household and of the Kazis. So she was very good at politics. She was very good at handling the British and the Kazis. And she ruled very well. Bhopal was doing very well in her time. A woman in the public sphere ruling as an equal to men and in fact doing a far better job of it, which is not surprising. I wanted to portray her character. So these are the three women characters that you'll find in the novel. And they show different aspects of, uh, you know, gender relations in the early 19th century. Interesting. So that, in fact, I this uh, I actually wanted to ask uh, you a separate question on the Sati piece, and I'm glad that you know you sort of wove in uh, this, and then you spoke about it. For me, I I I and I think that you know uh, what, and and this was the first book uh, you know that I'd read by you, and what I I really do love the way you write. However, um, you know. I actually, and this is, uh, I don't know, uh, a note to your publisher, maybe. I think the book can be very much, you know, a young adult and a new adult book. And um, I know, of course, it's adult historical fiction. But I think like more younger people, right? Teens, late teens, perhaps, right? should read books like these because, uh, I mean, because they just grow out of school reading a very uh, a very dry and brittle version of history which tells you oh this is when the quit india movement happened this is what was done under swadeshi right um, and and central india though of course is never spoken of so you have your mughals and and occasionally you'll have passing mention of your uh cholas etc and i mean before uh, uh we started speaking i had um uh, a gentleman named Vikramjit Singh Ruparai, who's written a book on the Bawlis of North India. He has been working on compiling a lot of historical data. And, I, and you know, I asked him that, you know, um, Vikramjit, tell me uh, uh, what, you know, tell me a little more about these things I don't know about, like, say, the Chola Kingdom, because all I ever grew up reading about was Akbar, Babar, Humayu, Shah Jahan, you know. And, and later, of course, uh, you know, the whole piece around uh, the, uh, the freedom movement. Uh, not saying that those aren't critical those that we should not be reading about. But there's so many of these, so voices and stories we never hear about, right? Nobody ever says, speaks about a Birsa Munda. So I think, I actually think that maybe your publisher should, <laughs> should push it to a lot of uh, people in their early 20s or, uh, you know, uh, in college and even high school because to me a lot of this could be very very interesting for somebody in in that age yeah thank you Aishi. i think that's a very good idea i mean i'd be happy if they read it my i write books for you know meant for everyone so uh, i hope they take it up that'd be great i have a question and you know uh, um which is more from a, a writer's pov right how do you uh, decide right for instance the book and the way it stands is takes a slightly literary route right um it's not it's not one it's a lot of context setting it's a lot of conversation it's very driven by dialogue right uh, so it, it's it's a series of events right it's not a narrative with you know uh, an explosion happens here someone was found hanging here and and there's i mean of course elements of society 
suspense and and uh, the story gets driven and i'm just trying to say this in as many ambiguous words as possible without no no not at all the explosions part is actually quite interesting maybe i should have done a michael bay somewhere in the middle yeah so for me right and 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 probably um while i really enjoyed reading reading the book and i loved every single aspect of the historical element it touched and and maybe because i'm just used to reading maybe racier historical fiction i think i i think i'll put it that way uh, that i i was kind of hoping for something which would be a little racier in pieces which doesn't take away from the fact that all that this was great to read it was eloquently written it had had extremely well constructed sentences it had great character it had good detailing but not obnoxious amount of detailing that you're just reading detailing and not the story so in in every way that a book is meant to be enjoyable it was enjoyable to me but i think some of this is my again my own personal bias right because every every book is a reader's own personal experience right? which is why some people love lord of the ring some people hate it and and for me uh, I I think I just ha- like cheap thrills in life too much, so I I would have loved this if this was a little racier, but but it still is is a great read, and I I I think uh, one of the uh, the best written books that I have read sort of the subject matter also that you're dealing with, which is far more complex than of course you know writing something just condensed in the here and now. Right. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, talking about the racy part, you know, one of the reasons that I mentioned, one of the reasons for writing this book is uh, some of the existing works on the stranglers of India have had this problem of misrepresentation, or actually, misrepresentation is a very strong word. Uh, a problem of, uh, you know, a, a kind of, you know, the the problem was in representing uh, both the thugs and the imperial officials. if you look back to the the book which started this whole trend you know the, the book which established the thugs in the popular imagination a book called confessions of a thug by philip meadows taylor so now that's racy all right uh, that you know there the, there is a certain exoticization of characters uh, a certain uh, a, a way of looking at india a certain way of looking at the stranglers and most of it was not historically accurate because the man who wrote it was not directly associated with the campaign against the the fascists philip meadows taylor he made a lot of claims about himself most of which were not true but uh, so his his book is is certainly entertaining but it is it is a historical now i wanted to address problems like that and therefore at the expense of of uh, you know removing or not dealing with some of the the more uh, you know exotic aspects of the story i wanted to talk about people and uh, you know uh, uh, characters motivations inner lives and uh, the, the larger socio cultural uh, uh, milieu rather than the you know the the more fantastic aspects of this problem so that's why if you see there are very few actual crimes that happen on stage in the story there is very little actual violence that happens on stage most of it is referred or indicated you know even even the one major action scene that supposedly takes place towards the end uh, involving uh, sleeman and another fellow again no spoilers <laughs> I, i i you know it's so difficult to talk without giving up a spoiler yeah, i know yeah yeah that's what so i have to really watch my words but uh, so even that takes place off stage only the the the, the set 
you know the the ambience is described so that's evening that you know the lamps have been lit and then this fellow turns up if you recall the passage that i'm talking about so i have i have mainly tried to you know uh, it's a crime novel but it talks about the why of uh, crime rather than the who done it aspect of it it is a detective story but i i i'm trying to deal with motivations and background here rather than with the actual crime because in you know, actual crime basically the actual crime is a few guys driven because of poverty and other reasons they go out and massacre thousands of people that's the crime now i can keep showing endlessly all these strangulations and murders and you know uh, other aspects of it but that will merely be you know what i would think would be uh, you know they would be certainly thrilling but Uh, i thought uh, that has already been done by other authors so i wanted to deal with these other aspects and i think you have succeeded marvelously at so that uh, it as i said i think it's one of the best written books you know most well written books so so that i think before we wrap up and and at the beginning of this conversation uh, you said that there, there are a bunch of good non fiction resources but if you had to recommend right for the listeners a couple of books right uh, whether it's fiction non fiction but you think would be uh, interesting eye openers around indian history uh, which are a few books that you'd recommend uh which period because there's so many of them really good ones which period um okay colonial period this period but i think let's go with the colonial period because uh, what if say somebody finishes this and then they want to read like more adjoining fiction yeah yeah so a very good introduction to the orientalists uh including wilson but to a larger extent uh, james princep and william jones a very good introduction is is uh, india discovered or is it rediscovered um, i need to check that uh, by john key you know john key is of course a great historian uh, a great teacher but also a very uh, very uh, good writer so he you know he's he's uh, he's a rare bird that way he's a great scholar but he can also write very well that one then another book of his a history of the east india company it's called the honorable company both these books are quite popular in india so i'm sure our readers have already uh, you know been through them so the honorable company is a, is a is a very detailed account of the east india company till the beginning of the mid 18th century so before their rise to prominence so that period Uh, then you have uh, you know uh, th- this book on the orientalists if you want to read up on the fasigars uh, further reading there is of course leman's works uh, there is rambles and recollections of uh, of a british official uh, and uh, there is his translation of the language of the thugs it's called the ramasiana uh, all of these are available in digitized form these days so you know getting them is is not really a problem so these are some of the books from that period which could give you a, a good useful background on uh, on uh, you know both british officials and india of that period lovely I, and uh, i think the book is india discovered by john key that's ah, india discovered key, yeah 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 that's uh, for everyone wanting to look it up it's it's spelled as k e a y not k e y so i just thought i let, let this out so that in case somebody is googling they know what to look for sidha thank you so much for this lovely list of recommendation and in this very very um, you know articulate and and i must say 
uh, inspiring conversation uh, because you've written in a way uh, with a which is not just you know detailed or which just not seeks to do justice to uh, the subject matter i think that you were dealing with but i think you've tried really take a stand on on the way you wanted to do this in terms of how you portrayed characters and issues and i think that's commendable thank you thank you very much ayushi for this conversation i really enjoyed it i wish it could be a little longer <laughs> thank you siddharth and thank you everybody for listening in siddharth's book twilight in a knotted world is available on amazon flipkart you can look it up on the simon and schuster website it's also available at independent bookstores like crossword and barisons and other bookstores near you please grab a copy do read it i um, as we discussed it, it really can be read by people of any age group and you must give this book a read because it's one of the most as i'm saying for the third time during this conversation well written books i've read this year thank you siddharth and thank you everyone thank you very much aishi thank you everyone and hope to see you guys again or hear you guys again on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Gaana and HT Smartcast. <laughs>